millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Running amok is a word derived from Southeast Asian, Austronesian languages. It has a Malay slash Indonesian origin, and it comes from the word Ming Amuk, which more or less means to make a furious and desperate charge. In the past, there was this belief that there was an evil tiger spirit roaming around because it used to be very forested, right? And forests have evil tiger spirits. And then you would come across the evil tiger spirit, or the evil tiger spirit would come across you, and you'd get possessed. And then that would cause you to, you know, run amok. So you would run around, assault people, kill people, and generally, because it's not really you, right? It's an evil tiger spirit. Afterwards, there wouldn't be any ill will or any bad vibes because it was the spirit that made you run amok, not you. And eventually, this became pretty prevalent. So the whole running amok thing, but not the tiger spirit thing. Actually, eventually got classified as an official psychiatric condition in 1849, and so it was in like the earlier versions of the DSM and everything. I'm going to drop you into pre-independence Singapore. All right, it's colonial Singapore. You're on a train on the way from Singapore to KL, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. You hear a commotion, and you look up. And you see a man, and what's he holding? He, is he holding a barang? No, he's holding a pocket knife. And the knife has a four-inch blade, and he's attacking people. He's not just attacking anyone; he's attacking British officers. The train stops for a moment, and the man either jumps off or he was pushed off, and he runs. He disappears into the jungle, and very much like Hansel and Gretel. He's running away and leaving a trail, but instead of a trail of breadcrumbs, he's leaving a trail of bodies. Mat Taram bin Sal was running amok. Hi, I'm Teddy, and welcome to a briefcase. Today we're covering the case of Mat Taram bin Sal, also known as Yuto. He killed. 11 people and wounded 10 others on a train near Bangi, Malaysia. Mat Taram bin Sa'el, and for simplicity, we're just going to call him by his alias Yuto. He was born in Indonesia and he came from Tunggul Island near Sumatra. He was born quite early in the century, probably around 1916, 1917. And by the time he was thirty, he already moved to Malaysia. He got married, and him and his wife they had three children. From what I could find, they lived a pretty simple life in Malaysia, where he owned a paddy farm. So his farm was in Parit Six, and there wasn't too much information about his life. But from what we can assume, 
It was a relatively peaceful, relatively simple life. Now we're gonna fast forward to around 1947, a little bit past World War II for context, when he was around 30. So now around this time, he gets this very strong urge to leave Malaysia. He was done. He wanted to move back home. He wanted to go and see his father. So he really, really, really wanted to go back to Indonesia, even though we can kind of tell that he had more or less a stable life in Malaysia. So Yuto needs money to get back to Indonesia. So what does he do? He ends up selling his farm, and he sells his farm for about two hundred straight dollars. Now this sounds like very little. It almost sounds like he got ripped off. Cause can you imagine selling a whole working body farm for two hundred dollars? But then I did the conversions. I did some math, and from Wikipedia, it looks like by nineteen o six, the straight dollar value. Was about two shillings and fourteen pence. So I googled some more, and I could definitely be wrong. So if anybody can correct me, would really appreciate. But at that point, one shilling was like five pence or so, right? So it was fourteen pence per straight dollar. So in the end, he got twenty-eight pounds, which sounds like very little, right? But then you put it into the inflation calculator, it's about a thousand pounds or so, which sounds okay, or about two point two sing today. Alright, so I don't really know if that's the realistic value of a farm today, but I guess if it was a rice farm or maybe it was a much smaller farm, like not a commercial farm, maybe it's a reasonable amount. Regardless, it's quite crazy to me that you could just buy a farm for two thousand dollars in like the nineteen forties. So now Yuto has his farm money, and at that time the world wasn't as connected. You didn't have any direct flights or direct ships or ferries or trains. To where he wanted to go, which was Sumatra. So instead of say taking a direct route from Malaysia to Indonesia, you had to go from Malaysia to Singapore to Indonesia, and also because Singapore at that point of time was already a pretty developed port. So he goes all the way from Malaysia to Singapore with his family, and he brings with him his wife and his three children. So I think that maybe they were planning on resettling in Indonesia. We we don't really know. So now this is where they run into a problem, and you can't really fault him for this. He couldn't check on Trip.com or Skyscanner or even like the company website, and maybe you couldn't call in at that time for the price either, right? So he lands in Singapore. He goes to the ferry terminal, and then he finds out, oh, shit, the ferry tickets are forty straight dollars each. I think it should be forty. I read it somewhere, but it might have been even more than that. And in the end, he only has maybe two hundred dollars, maybe less, because he would have had spent money coming down, right? So Yuto is really upset about this. He really, really wanted to go to Indonesia. You can tell he sold his farm, and he desperately wanted to see his father. So they spent two days in Singapore, and for those whole two days, Yuto didn't sleep at all. Apparently, he just paced back and forth, and he was just depressed, and he was pondering what they could do. And after two days, he finally decided that they should go home to their farm. In Parit Six in Malaysia, so that was October ninth. Yuto and his family, so that's his wife and his three children. They go from Singapore to around northern Johor, and then after that, they hop from northern Johor on a mail train to KL. 
now on the train, Yuto was really quiet. So I guess if I was, say, his wife, I would think that he was just very upset over the whole fairy price capitalism thing, right? Now, we don't know, but I suspect that he would have been ruminating, just so furious about the fact that he couldn't buy the tickets to Indonesia. And don't forget, he was massively sleep-deprived. He hadn't slept for two days. And then just out of a sudden, he snaps. It was about 6.10pm in the evening, and the train was on the way to its next stop, to Kajang. Yuto stands up. He leaves his seat, he leaves his family. He goes into the restaurant car. Alright, he storms into the car. And you know it's about evening time, about dinner time. So the restaurant car is populated. There's a bunch of people that are trying to get their dinner. Once he's in the car, he pulls out a pocket knife. So initially, I thought it was like a really, really small pocket knife, right? But no, in the, this was in the past and pocket knives were very functional. The knife itself, it had a four inch blade, okay? That's like pretty long when you see it on a ruler. And of all the people to attack, he goes straight for the British officers of the Malaya Command Signals Regiment. So imagine you're an officer, you're just eating dinner and suddenly you get attacked by a pocket knife and a man. And the thing is, we don't really know what his mental state was when he decided to do this. So on the train, he kills one of the officers. He kills a sergeant by stabbing him straight through the heart. He stabbed the other officers in the stomach and he also stabbed another one in the chest. He didn't just attack the officers though, he was, he was for lack of a better word, running amok. He ended up attacking another Malay man, another Indian man. Um, the Indian man died from his chest wound a couple days later. So now because of all this commotion, the train stops. And we aren't too clear about this but he either was thrown off or he jumped off and he runs into the forest. And this varies from source to source but it's more likely that he jumps off in his frenzy. You know, but the thing was that this was in 1947 and they couldn't send out any like messages or whatsapps with photos or telegrams. And I think at that point of time, they didn't even have mobile phones. They only had landlines. So they couldn't really spread the message very fast or very far. Normal people, the man on the street, he wouldn't have known that there was a mass murderer running amok. And this is where he starts to leave his trail of death. He's running, he sees a homeless Chinese man under a bridge near the railway tracks, and he takes this opportunity and he just stabs the man to death. He continues running and he runs about 3 miles on, that's like 6km. He runs into a kongsi, so it's like a kongsi hut, I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's basically like a Chinese clan association or a meeting hall. In this Gongzi, he kills one man, two older women, and three children. He attacks and wounds nine other people, including four children. And after that, he runs away again. And remember, this is quite a while back, so it takes the police about an hour later to arrive, and they brought the injured to a hospital. It takes them a while, it takes the police a while to get organized, but eventually they do, and they have hundreds of police just searching for him, in that area, in the jungles around the train, near the Gongxi, and they're checking in on his family because remember, his family was just sitting there when he went on his rampage. And where was Yuto? After that, he kind of stopped his killing spree, 
and he hasn't slept and we don't know if he was suffering from any kind of psychosis but it definitely looked like he was having a breakdown. We find out that after killing those people, he ends up walking all the way home to Barrett 6. So this was a 90 mile walk. That's like a 144 km walk. And it took him 36 hours. So that's another 36 hours on top of the two days that he didn't sleep at all. So we know that he definitely wasn't in the right state of mind. And can you imagine what it was like for his family? You imagine you think your dad stood up to maybe go get a snack or go to the bathroom and then you find out that he went on a killing spree. Eventually, he reaches back to his farm. So I guess the people there, it's not a big area, right? They know that he sold his farm and that he was planning to go back to Sumatra. So they asked him, what are you doing here? And he says that, well, I was trying to get there, but I didn't have enough money for the trip. And I was coming back with my wife and my kids. But on the journey back, a Chinese boy, he spilled tea on me. And eventually it resulted in an awful fight. And I got kicked off the train without my wife and my kids. So the township people, they're a bit sus, but they're also a bit worried for him. But he also wanted help getting back to his family. So I'm not sure if he was totally like conscious about what was happening. They end up taking him or he ends up going to a police station nearby. And he just retells the same story with the tea and the fight and the train. So another thing that was pretty interesting is that when they found him, he had no blood stains on his clothes. He was clean dressed and they said that his demeanor, his behavior, it was all normal. So maybe he found some time to clean up. One other key detail is that he said he didn't remember anything at all after he was pushed off the train. Now this is a couple of days after the whole incident, after the mass murder at the Gongsi, and we know that the police were on the lookout for him. And back then there wasn't any internet, there wasn't any intranet. So by then, they actually published newspapers about what happened on the train and after. And this was such a big deal at that time, especially since he killed a British army officer. It was even in the Australian newspapers. So one of the policemen, he actually already read some articles about it and he had suspected that Yuto was the person. He suspected that Yuto was the killer, so he was pretty sharp. And then after that, he gets arrested and detained in Taluk Anzon. The police, they get his wife to come in and identify him. And of course she does because he's her husband, right? And he gets charged with the murder of one of the officers, Herbert Maston. The case is transferred to the court in Kajan because it's a little bit bigger, I think. And the hearings begin almost immediately on October 14th. So I guess it may have been a lot faster then. At the same time, I think that anyone would have been able to tell that he wasn't stable. He was sent to a mental hospital in Tanjong Rambutan on October 29th, where he was supposed to stay there for a month. And another thing is that during court, he was very adamant that they either kill him or free him. He just kept questioning why they wanted to keep him under arrest, why they wanted to drag this out. And if they were just going to drag it out, they might as well like kill him and finish it. So by 4th May 1948, looking at 
the report from the mental hospital, looking at just his behavior in general, they concluded that he was of unsound mind and he was not guilty on account of his mental state. He was sentenced to a mental hospital, the same one in Tanjong Rambutan, and the way it was phrased was at the pleasure of the ruler in council, which I guess translates to maybe life in the hospital. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of A Briefcase. It's a pretty old one. Do let me know if you have any other interesting Southeast Asian cases to recommend. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at A Briefcase Podcast or online at abriefcasepodcast.com. And do join us next week for another briefcase. Go wild with generative AI in Adobe Photoshop. Create anything you can imagine just by typing a text prompt, like a jaguar. No, a jaguar on a spaceship. Yes, this changes everything. Try it now at Photoshop.com.